Yeah, I think we can get started. Um, I appreciate everyone uh, joining us today. I see we have uh, approaching 150 uh, online. I'm, that doesn't count the people who sit in a cluster of 3,000 folks <laughs> with them. Uh, but uh, but it, it's a, it's uh, we appreciate the uh, uh, the interest in this. Uh, at some level, we're concerned that COVID by itself is no longer as compelling an issue as it as it certainly as it used to be. Uh, but uh, if we are ever in doubt, that's always uh, supplanted by uh, a very broad interest in viruses and vaccines and treatments uh, that continues to expand, I think. Um, and as the name of our organization, the International Antiviral Society uh, USA uh, indicates, uh, we are absolutely not committed to a single virus. And, uh, and in this case, uh, today we're we're going to be hopefully touching, uh, in addition to COVID, on uh, MPOX. We have uh, issues, uh, many issues of of RSV, uh, and uh, in in COVID, uh, ongoing issues of variants and treatments and vaccine development. So I look forward to uh, to the discussion. As as always, we have great panelists. Um, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll mention them just by name, uh, Carlos Del Rio from Emory, Bonnie Maldonado from Stanford, Mike Sag uh, from University of Alabama, Birmingham, and not with us today uh, is Peter Chin Hong, who is one of our usuals. Mike Sag always is willing to, to jump on board and, uh, and is obviously uh, fully expert in all these areas and a, and a great friend of all of ours. So I look forward to the uh, to the discussion. Um, maybe let's just go around and, and order on my computer screen. Carlos, do you want to introduce yourself a little bit more completely? Not not too completely, but... <laughs> not too completely. Well, yeah, thank yeah. you. Thank you. Happy to be here, uh, Paul. Carlos Del Rio. I'm a professor of medicine and infectious disease at Emory University, and uh, I'm also a member of the, of the board of directors of ISUSA. I've done a HIV uh, research, both on prevention and, 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 and treatment for many, many years. And now with COVID, been a lot involved in a lot of the COVID studies, including, you know, the, the study that led to the approval of remdesivir, uh, many of the vaccine studies, the Moderna and the, and the Novak vaccine, and, uh, and now working with the, with the recovery cohort in long COVID issues. Great. Super. Thank you. Uh, Mike, uh, you want to introduce yourself? I'm a professor of medicine and infectious diseases at University of Alabama at Birmingham. Uh, Long-standing history in HIV. Uh, got involved in COVID unwittingly in March of 2020 when I developed COVID in the early days, and have been involved in the treatment of that. I'm currently on the board of directors of the IES USA, and I'm on the DSMB of the Recover study that's along COVID. Uh, project that Carlos just mentioned. Great. And finally, Bonnie or Yvonne. I should say, uh, first of all, you're muted still. So Yes, sorry about that. Should and know better by new, now. Tell us about your new position at Stanford. It's very exciting. Yeah, so I'm a professor of global health and infectious diseases and senior associate dean for faculty development diversity. And I was the former Division Chief for Pediatric Infectious Diseases, but as of this coming Friday, I will be Interim Chair of the Department of Medicine. Our illustrious Chair Bob Harrington will be going on to be Dean of the uh, Cornell Medical School, so I will be standing in for him, and we're welcoming applicants for the position here. <laughs> uh, but in the meantime, I did a, I've done a lot of work in uh, global child health, particularly vaccine preventable diseases, a lot of work around polio eradication strategies in the field, primarily in indigenous populations, working in prevention of mother-to-child transmission of HIV um, programs and uh, clinical trials, primarily in Sub-Saharan Africa, and of course, more recently, like my colleagues have done work with COVID, primarily working on the remdesivir trial, some of the outpatient uh, antiviral studies and the pediatric vaccines, as well as some of the actually maternal and child uh, 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 RSV vaccines as well. Great. Um, so we have now uh, almost 250 uh, people uh, logged on to the, to the call. Again, appreciate your being here. 
one of the joys that I think we all get is looking at the list of participants, uh, looking for old friends, colleagues. We we always see a lot of them. Um, I'll try not to call too many people out by name, uh, uh, which suggests favoritism if I don't mention you. But uh, uh, as always, uh, welcome to the to the program. Um, at the risk of forgetting it, um, there still is HIV, right? Um, and so I think one of the big stories in the last uh, couple of weeks um, has been the reprieve study, um, study showing that statins can uh, can help reduce the risk of cardiovascular disease even in HIV-infected people without other indications. Any of you want to just uh, tell us a quick uh, highlight of that beyond what I've just said? I can get it started. Uh, yeah. We've known that statins are indicated like they are for most all people um, when they um, uh, have risk of cardiovascular disease or score high on the cardiovascular risk calculator. But for HIV, there was a concern that early inflammation from HIV would potentially put people at higher risk for cardiovascular disorders and maybe a statin might be indicated even when the risk calculator is low. So Steve Grinspoon, Turner Overton, and others put together a study through the ACTG that was designed to take people over the age of 40 with HIV, but no other specific risk factors for cardiovascular disease. So their cardiovascular relative risk over 10 years was 3% or less. And they randomized them to receive a statin therapy or, or placebo, and they enrolled roughly 7,300 individuals, and it was meant to go on for quite a long time. A few months ago, the Data Safety Monitoring Board stopped the study because the group who were receiving statins had lower rates of hospitalization due to cardiovascular events and lower mortality. And they saw a wide enough difference that it hit stopping rules. And just this week in the New England Journal of Medicine, Greenspoon, Grinspoon and, and his colleagues published the findings, and they're really quite robust. And on one level, a little bit surprising because I think there was genuine equipoise about should we be using statins in people who otherwise don't have an indication. And but it, it's clear that this is something that is going to change treatment. And my final comment is that um, statins we know help with cardiovascular illnesses, but there seems to be another anti-inflammatory or some other benefit that it's hard to quantify. And it almost makes some people say, well, maybe we should just put putting statins in the water supply because it helps people live longer. But that's the overall summary. Great. And in full disclosure, I was on the DSMB for the Data Safety Monitoring Board for that study. So you're responsible for stopping yeah. that study. And in addition to everything you said, Mike, which is all is all great, um, just a, a kudos to the to the study uh, uh, management and, and leadership for keeping this going. It was a huge study, very international. And despite the emergence of the COVID pandemic, uh, they're able to to maintain the integrity of of this really large, uh, long-standing trial that I think, as you say, that does show um, that there's a real outcome, there's a real uh, benefit, and I think the the message of of statins for people with HIV and the and the and the underlining uh, of HIV as an independent risk factor, uh, in addition to the usual ones, is is an important part of the study. So. Uh, so really good. Um, yeah, I might add one other thing, Paul. I've never seen this from any study group historically. Maybe you can give me another example, but I think they published 25 to 30 manuscripts around the study without really getting yeah. into its overall outcome yeah. on all kinds of things. And just a remarkable effort yeah. by the yeah. study team that I'm sure is going to continue. Absolutely, different types of, of clots and uh, other things that uh, that contribute to this. So, uh, so really good. Um, COVID, COVID is still here, right? Um, in the Bay Area, we've heard in the last couple of weeks that cases are increasing in some neighborhoods, um, and I haven't heard anyone saying that uh, or suggesting that the disease itself seems more severe, uh, but it hasn't gone away. Um, 
well we're so certainly here in the bay area i there there are some data you know we're not keeping track the same way we were before but as you all know we've been tracking wastewater data around the country and here in the bay area we are seeing a bit of an uptick in our wastewater across the bay area and it's pretty much it's it's pretty widespread i wouldn't say it's alarmingly high but it's definitely up a little um, we don't really know why that is. And if you look across the country at the different uh, the different genotypes, um, they're really a mixed bag. So XBB1 has been around, but it's starting to, to drift down. And there's just a whole bunch of clusters of different XBB type subvariants that are just tending to crop up. Now, the hospitalization rates have ticked up a little bit, but not much. So I would say in the Bay Area here at Stanford, for example, we are seeing a few more hospitalizations, but certainly nothing alarming. Uh, obviously, it's unfortunate when people are hospitalized. And across the country, the numbers are up a little. We're talking about maybe five to 7,000 hospitalizations a day right now across the country. So pretty low, but definitely higher than what we had seen earlier. So what that means in terms of waning immunity or the need for another booster, given that the, we are pretty clear on the data that the current booster is not really affecting our current variants, um, I think we're just going to have to wait for the fall variant. I don't know, Mike or Carlos, what you think, but I think we're probably going to have to wait for those fall uh, fall boosters to come along. So, we're waiting for the new uh, booster to be to be announced. But you're suggesting that the number of that the variants that we're seeing are actually still fairly complicated. Are are we concerned that going with a single uh, variant booster uh, will be a mistake? I mean, there was some talk earlier about going to a to a bivalent uh, booster to to broaden it. Well, you know the the, the issue, Paul, is that that these vaccines were never designed and are not very good at preventing infection. And we need to get we need to get that very clear in our heads. They're very good at preventing severe disease. They're very good at preventing, you know, hospitalization and death. And the people we're seeing getting hospitalized and, and even dying today are people that have not even received their first bivalent booster. So I think, you know, as a nation, only about 16% of the population received the first booster. We're talking about now a new booster. Well, I, I, my biggest concern is people are not going to take it. And, mm -hmm. and that to me is, is the biggest challenge is we're, we're talking here about the science, but the reality is that if vaccines don't save lives, it's vaccination that saves lives. And if we don't get people vaccinated, we can have whatever booster with one variant or two variants or three variants is not going to make a difference if people don't take it. And even in people over the age of 65, only about 46% of them have received that bivalent booster. And, you know, they, they were already recommended to get a second one. It's only about 10% of people have done so. So I'm worried about our communication. I'm worried about how we're letting people know. And I'm worried about the enormous lack of trust in vaccines and COVID vaccines in particular that we currently have that is just okay. making people say, why should I get vaccinated anyway? But let me jump in uh, to push back just a little bit, Carlos, because we've also seen data that something like 98% of the U.S. population, at least of adults, uh, has either been vaccinated or has recovered from COVID infection, and presumably both of those confer some degree of protection against severe disease. Uh, is that going to be enough to get us through the next? Uh, the next so we, there are a number of papers, Paul, around this area. We have a CDC Vanderbilt network with seven sites around the country, and we're looking at those house, at household transmission in particular. But even if you look at the general population, the data are consistent that showing that, uh, interestingly enough, vaccination and infection are not as effective at preventing uh, out, uh, out, serious outcomes as the combination. So being infected and vaccinated seems to be really the best uh, way to prevent yourself from having serious outcomes. Um, but as Carlos said, we can't get people vaccinated or boosted, boosted, which is a real problem because what the other data that have been showing up very clearly is that the um, the Omicron variants and all the subvariants just don't respond, uh, don't react to, they, they don't, um, you can't prevent infection very well or complications from them 
from the original or ancestral strain. So we really do need that booster strain and certainly whatever might be coming in the fall to really affect any of the variants that are coming out at this point. So the fact that I've been fully vaccinated and boosted and infected twice. Uh, Roger, remember, remember, at one of this give me some remember at one of these dialogues that I mentioned hybrid immunity, I said, Paul, you need to get infected because you were one, I think you were one, <laughs> yeah. you were one of I the last people. To you. I, I did. I always do what you say, Carla. So I <laughs> went out and got infected twice. Um, and let me just uh, perseverate on this a bit. Uh, so I actually got infected twice, and I think both were tied to uh, to plane, long distance plane travel, mm-hmm. which I, in my wisdom, decided not to wear a mask. Um, the last time I traveled was a week ago, and I wore a mask, and I didn't get infected. Does that prove that masks work? And what do you think, Carlos? Well. Masks for sure work. We know that. I mean, we all worked in with hundreds, if not thousands of these patients and in the healthcare system, you know, we and others have published data showing healthcare systems were incredibly safe. We were really uh, masked and gowned, mostly the masking, I think, and the eye protection. So it's very clear that it works. The question is on an individual basis, how well does it work? Um, You know, it depends on how you wear your mask and who you're around and all of that. But um, masking definitely works. I think at this point, I think Carlos's point is very important. We brought it up at the beginning, but it kind of got lost. Um, the question is, you know, we really need to get away from this idea that vaccines are going to prevent infection. We never set out to prevent infection. Obviously, it would be great. Many of us thought the virus itself would evolve to become a less virulent virus that we could just tolerate. And then we protect the sickest people in our population. That's what we do with vaccines all in all. Just protect people against morbidity and mortality. And that's what the vaccines will do. Um, And so that's the message we need to get out because people say, well, I got vaccinated and I still got sick. Well, good, but you didn't wind up in the hospital or you didn't die. So that message has just kind of disappeared. Yeah, but I I want to add to that, moving on from vaccines. The other tool we have is antivirals, right? And we're not using them appropriately. Let, let, Carlos, let me let me jump in because Mike and I have talked about this before, and I think on this uh, on this uh, the, these calls before. But um, so the first time I got infected, I was pretty sick, and I took Paxlovid, and it seemed maybe to make me get better quicker. Who knows? N of one. The second time, I didn't and did fine without it. Uh, Mike, where do you stand on Paxlovid? And Carlos raised this idea, but I wanted to draw you into the conversation. Well, well, I think that it really, the details matter. Uh, this is a viral infection. In the first three to five days, there's high level viral replication. And then the immune response is really what generates our symptoms. So at the time we're developing symptoms for the first time from an illness, the virus has been there for a while churning. And if if someone can get on Paxlovid within the first four to 12 hours, that's when it's going to work the best. So if somebody waits three days, it's probably not going to have much effect. To that point, remdesivir, which is used in the hospital on day seven, eight, by the time somebody gets admitted, does a little bit, but that's because the virus, the viral uh, spike was days before, and it's just not going to work as well. So the, the timing really matters. So if someone, I think we should all be monitoring ourselves for symptoms if we have symptoms, test quickly. If positive, get on Paxlovid, assuming no contraindication, and and get on it as soon as you can. What I think we're experiencing, and to Carlos's point, there's resistance. I don't know if it's so much among patients. The doctors yeah, yeah, are yes, resistant sure. to treat. Yep. And I haven't quite figured that out yet, especially... Ah treating early. Mike, I've no. even heard at the pharmacy, I've heard pharmacists on the phone saying, oh, the doctor told you to take it, but I don't think you should. I cannot believe that that is going on in, the, yeah, in well, today's world. Welcome yeah. to the world, I guess. Right. Um, so an, another- Let thing, me just make yeah. another point. And I don't know that we've yep. proven this, but remember when we saw these patients at the very beginning, I remember taking care of these patients. We had a big tents because we weren't, we, we were yep. so yep. many, we couldn't be in the hospital and they'd come in and they say, I feel great. I feel great. I don't want to enroll in any trials. And two days later or three days later, they were really sick. So this really comes to, back to your point about t- treating early, because what we know about early disease, especially among the um, the uh, 
the susceptible, the fully susceptibles is the virus doesn't hit you hard until about seven, five to seven days out. You really don't feel bad. And we started figuring out to give people pulse oximeters. And when you measure their pulse oximetry in the first two to three days, when they felt fine, their pulse oxes were actually not good. So they didn't feel bad, but their, their pulmonary physiology was responding. And then what happens is it gets kicked in later on and then they're sick and it's too late for the antiviral potentially to work. Now, I don't know that, I can't prove that, but that seems to be a pattern that we saw over and over again. Mike, do you want to comment? Yeah, I wanted, I wanted to say three quick things. One is about Paxlovid, uh, Bonnie, to your point, you, you can't, a lot of people say, well, I'll just wait and see how I do. You can't do that. You get, if you're going to use Paxlovid, use it early. The two other quick wrap-up points from our earlier conversation. I think airplanes are perhaps one of the most unsafe environments now, not because of the airflow is great, but because people are on vacation, they get sick, they test positive. They say, I don't want to be sick on the road, I'm gonna hop on my flight early and come back. So they fly while infected and transmitting virus. And I'm, I would bet, unfortunately, some don't bother to wear a mask. The second, the second thing that I would add is going back to, does the vaccine prevent illness? And by my recollection, the original vaccine against the original strain actually did seem to protect against symptomatic infection. It was mm -hmm. that early thing. And then when Delta came along in the summer of 21, that's when we lost control of preventing symptoms. If you remember the outbreak on Cape Cod where 75% of people were vaccinated. Yeah, but and, but and remember, remember, Mike, the, the again, those initial phase three studies, the Moderna, the Pfizer, they were all designed to, to prevent severe disease hospitalization. We really didn't look an infection until later. And it was a surprise when we found the prevented infection. And we were all very happy, but you're absolutely right. That happening is that lasted a short amount of time and right. because it went away by the summer, right? But the reality right. is they still prevent some infection. They still right. have some. And, and I want to emphasize what Bonnie says. We have about 67% of the US population has been vaccinated. And then we have a large percentage that also has been infected. Those of us that have hybrid immunity have actually pretty good protection. Now, over time, it wanes. It's very clear that over time, the protection wanes. When you look, for example, at the current strains, your protection after you've been boosted is about 30 to 40%. After 90 days, it's down to about 12%. So it wanes. But the protection against severe disease and death wanes a lot slower, except if you're over 65. And the older you get, the more rapid it's going to wane. So going back to Paxlovid, I, the emphasis, and you're absolutely right, we got to get people, especially over the age of 65, if they get infected, take Paxlovid, not because they're not sick, but because they have risk factors to getting sick. And what you want to prevent is you want to treat them to prevent them from getting sick as opposed to treat them because they're sick. And I think that's a little bit of a change in, in the way we manage things. And we as physicians frequently say, well, you really don't need this antibiotic. You're not as sick. Here you have to say you really need this antiviral because we don't want you to get sick. Your risk factors determined that you need this antiviral. And that's a bit of a change that I think is causing the difficulties that we're hearing with people knowing when to prescribe it. So I uh, I want to get back. Uh, actually, I want to get back and kind of close off, hopefully, a discussion of, uh, of COVID vaccine, because I, I want to get to some other. Yeah, let me let me Wait. just add one one new. <laughs> okay. This Go is ahead. brand new. This is brand new out this past week. There's an article in Science Advances uh, where the group at Duke and the Fred Hutch and some others released data about a broadly neutralizing anti-coronavirus, uh, basically a monoclonal, but the hope is that not only might it work as bivlimivimab and others did before and not lose its effectiveness, the hope is that it could be developed into a vaccine that's, that produces broad neutralization. And that theoretically could get us back to where we were back in December, 2020 and early 21. So that's a hopeful comment about the future. So, so the sort of holy grail of um, HIV vaccines with BNABs, as as uh, we we toss the term around. Uh, before we move on from vaccine, though, let me just uh, ask: uh, What's the bottom line? Uh, what's the vaccine that people can expect to uh, hear about this fall? Uh, when is it going to appear? Uh, it's, what, it's probably what isolate. It, does it work it, for, and who should get it? 
it's probably going to be an XBB vaccine plus minus the original strain. It's probably still going to be a bivalent with the XBB and the original strain. It's it's going to be recommended, you know, strongly recommended for people over 65. I think it's going to be recommended that everybody gets it. I don't think they're going to say you don't need to take it. But the reality is very few people, are, you know, young people are unlikely to, to get it. We, yeah. we know that already from the current booster. But I think we need to make an effort, those of us that see patients over 65, to really recommend they get yeah. vaccinated. What you said at the beginning, you're right. If somebody says to me, should I get boosted now? I tend to tell them, no, wait until the, the right. new the new, the new new vaccines emerge in the fall. But but we are, uh, we're playing a bit of a guessing game because, you know, with with uh, influenza, when they decide what 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 viruses they're going to put in the vaccine, the three strains that are going to go in the vaccines, those strains stay pretty stable throughout the year. Rarely do they change. COVID is like, you know, that on steroids. Every X number of weeks, the virus is evolving and producing a new strain. So we may think XBB is the right strain. Between now and the fall, there are many weeks. There may be a new variant that emerges that doesn't do, yeah. that we're not included in the vaccine. So that to me is the biggest challenge is that, is that we're paying, playing catch up and, and going back to what Mike says, we need, you know, pan-coronavirus vaccines because playing catch up with these vaccines and yeah. trying to target the virus is not working. So let me yeah, violate the universal, my, me, the universal epitope my, would be really uh, helpful. Saying and ask, um, <laughs> I'm going to ask the person who was trying to talk um, to talk. Uh, Bonnie, um, on the other end of the age spectrum, uh, you're yeah. a pediatric ID person. Uh, will these vaccines be, will the vaccine in the fall already be approved for all age groups down to yeah. infants? Uh, have, we, have we learned the lesson of not testing new vaccines in all age groups? Well, so that's a that's I think we're still struggling with that, and it'll be really interesting to see how FDA and CDC come down. I have talked to some of my colleagues and some of the policymakers, and I think they're struggling to figure out what to do with the adolescent age group, in particular, the younger adults who seem to do well. I don't think there's any question. Well, in my mind, there's less of a question of whether children. Uh, under five, for example, should get vaccinated, although they are the least likely to be vaccinated. I think that's the group where we saw the most morbidity. Um, in the uh, over 12-year-olds, uh, between 12 and say 25 or so, that's where there was the least morbidity and mortality. I think that's where people are struggling to decide. But I do agree with Carlos, probably recommended for everybody. But as you heard with RSC, which we'll talk to about later, maybe shared decision-making for sure the older individuals, but I think kids under five, there's more of an argument because of the hospitalization risk. And I think the adolescence is still up for grabs. So um, my understanding is I'm having trouble being heard. So I'll try to adjust my volume. I've gotten so close to my computer, I can kind of feel it. Um, but uh, I just want to say before we move on at all that among the participants, we have a real hero of the of the HIV epidemic. Margaret Fischel has joined us. So uh, welcome uh, to the to the call, Margaret. Um, uh, great to great to have you here. Um, so uh, also in the last week or so, we've heard continuing discussion, a big story in the New York Times uh, this past Sunday on the origins of uh, of SARS-CoV-2. Um, who wants to jump into that for a few minutes and tell us why we should care and what what's your bet? Is this an animal virus that just kind of jumped in the, in the marketplace into humans? Uh, is it an intentional engineered virus to target um, um, certain populations, uh, uh, subpopulations of Ashkenazi Jews and Chinese people? What what what's your what's your reaction to this? to this story. So um, yeah, I saw that article. And of course, David Relman here at Stanford has been a real proponent for getting this story straight. I don't, I think the article left us with um, a very nicely done article, but I think most people agree with what the article said is that we're probably not going to know absent additional information because the sources of information are uh, not available anymore. They've either been deleted or they were never collected to begin with. So there are very good arguments for all three opportunities. That is, one is a true spillover event from animals. And there's very good evidence if you, you can match strains from animals that, that flow very well through the lineage of the human SARS-CoV-2. On the other hand, there's some bumps there that really can't be accounted for. 
The other issue around a, a, you know, it seems like a very big coincidence that there's a viral facility near the market or in the same city as the market. And the question there is whether or not it was an intentional release or whether there was an accidental release from an infected individual who worked at the lab. And there's some really good data supporting uh, the way some of the genetic sequences look to be manipulated as if they were manipulated in a laboratory fashion. And it's a little complicated to go into that, but basically some of those mutations generally don't occur in nature. Now, it's hard to know with coronavirus what might or might not occur in nature. So it, it's we're, we're probably not going to know for now. Whether we should know is really important because it does help us understand how we should be attacking the next wave of coronaviruses. Now, what Mike brought up about a universal epitope is great, but we still need to understand whether spillover, how to predict spillover events. And there are people who are modeling spillovers and where do you reach a particular level that might need to be intervened with. Um, these are gonna be massive questions though. Even if we understand it, how do we address spillovers? How do we address lab accidents? especially outside the US, um, those are going to, we're going to need to mobilize a lot. And that's why those are so important. And, and, I don't know what others think. And, and I would add to that, that the reality is that lack of transparency and lack of cooperation of the Chinese authorities and trying to, you know, not, not be transparent and not invite, you know, international, you know, investigators right away to try to figure out what's going on only increases the suspicion and the concerns about this. And we really need to work for a, for a world in which there is true transparency and international collaboration. The, the, if we don't have that, these events will continue to happen and we will continue to have this kind of problems. The reality is we all need to work together to try to prevent this, you know, whether it's a spillover or a laboratory accident, there's a laboratory accident. If we work together, we should be able to contain it, but trying to, trying to not disclose it and trying to keep it hush-hush is not the right approach. And we really need stronger international regulations that will allow us to do that. That's all good. Um, uh, let me ask if, if my volume has improved at all. Yeah, yeah I can hear you better. I'm being facetious here, but honestly, if we have a, if we have a government hearing about UFOs, we should be able to have a, a more open hearing about COVID vaccines. And certainly, uh, I would say they're at least equal, if not more important. So. Uh, I won't well, I comment say, on the Paul, proposal of, of having a, a certain former um, <laughs> Kennedy uh, appointed to the CDC directorship, but uh, uh, let's let's pass on that uh, political comment. Mike? Yeah, I was going to say, uh, as an N of one, people of Ashkenazi Jewish heritage uh, can get infected. Oh, well, <laughs> thank, thank despite, you. Despite what... Yeah, yeah. Junior. That brings up a really good point, Paul. And I know all of us have been dealing with this. And the question, and I'm monitoring this on the American Academy of Pediatrics side, we are seeing more and more um, uh, vaccine legislation, anti-vaccine legislation coming forward. Fortunately, most of it has been knocked down. But there is more and more, uh, there are more and more efforts to reduce the power and influence of vaccination programs at the state level. Um, this goes hand in hand, of course, with uh, care for certain sexual and gender minority patients where we've actually seen whole divisions of physicians fired from state uh, and public community clinics and state and public universities fired for the kinds of work they're doing. So we are facing a real existential threat around the value of science-based medicine. Um, and vaccines are just the spearhead of that. So I do want I do want to move on, but I, I think it's fair to say that, as I understand it, there's been a long history, way before COVID, of concerns about vaccines and various uh, uh, doubts and conspiracies, probably going back forever. Um, to so the beginning, yep. nothing to new Edward under Jenner. The, mm -hmm. nothing new under the sun, but uh, but really, obviously, uh, really troublesome. And speaking of vaccines. Bonnie, um, the new discussion this week uh, has been RSV. Um, I find it um, pretty confusing. Um, it, it is confusing. It, it's exciting that we are finally focusing. Yeah. But as Carlos pointed out before we started, you know, is it really a disease? I mean, you know, 
And here's a great example. We've been tackling this on NVAC, on the National Vaccine Advisory Committee. We're trying to discuss this. And the best use case for vaccination information is RSV. Here's a disease that kills six to 60 to uh, 60 to a, a, a six to 10,000 adults over 60 every year that we never knew about because people didn't think about testing because why would you test if you have nothing you can do about the disease? This brings me back to the days early of H, early HIV, where I advocated for testing pregnant women. And I was told, well, what would you do with that information? Nothing. So we had to have a use case for testing before we were able to do it. So this has been a triumph in many ways to actually identify the source of deaths and hospitalizations, 60 to 100,000 60 100,000 adults over Why did it take us so why did it take us so long to turn our attention to RSV and make Because it a- everyone thought it was a pediatric disease, right? We didn't, you know, adults get viruses, you know, people just think, well, there's some something going around and it's hard. It's very hard to test for RSV. Now we have better methodology, but even as a pediatrician, the tests were terrible. They were DFA tests, you know, direct fluorescent antibodies, they were terrible, false positives, false negatives. It wasn't until we had much better um, a PCR technology that was rapid that you could do at point of care that really even pediatricians were able to use it. And the reason we were focused on it is because it's the most, it, it used to be the second most common. Now it's the most common cause of hospitalization in kids in the US. Two to 3% of kids are hospitalized. So we've always been focused on it. And because it causes more severe and acute symptoms in babies with bronchiolitis being the main one, we were we could intervene with uh, with uh, different mostly with oxygen. Again, the question of steroids has been put to bed, but for a long time we used steroids, bronchodilators. So there was a lot of intervention you could do that did not involve um, you know vaccines. Um, and so that was never really the case with adults because you have bigger airways. You don't have the same acute disease, but you wind up with this more chronic manifestations. So we just didn't recognize it. It's hard to test for. Pediatricians hate to have to deal with it because, you know, not everybody has the capacity to do the rapid testing that's required. And then what do you do about it? There's not a whole lot to do. So the vaccines are going to make a big difference and the the monoclones may also make a difference. So let me let me uh, ask a question that I've uh, sort of heard in, in, in reading about this, that some say uh, that the vaccines, first of all, there are several vaccines that are that are coming out. Right. Um, and some of them apparently have only been tested uh, for about a one year um, uh, protection uh, duration. Others are being tested in, in trials for three-year uh, protection. Should I take a vaccine uh, that's only been shown effective in shorter term? Should I wait until a longer duration uh, trial result is available? What's your What's your reaction to that, Bonnie? Well, so as with most mucosal viruses, um, RSV, we know a lot about the epidemiology in kids because that's the only thing we could study for the longest time. We know that most individuals, adults as well, can get reinfected year after year. And yet RSV, there's two serotypes, A and B, they rarely mutate outside of a fairly limited number of small and unimportant, mostly unimportant mutations. So the viruses have been remarkably stable and yet we get reinfected, all of us, every age group, year after year. So the idea that a vaccine works for a year makes sense to me because you're probably not gonna get long-term immunity. And in the meantime, you can prevent the annual surge if it turns out we have a vaccine that works for more than a year, then that's great. But in the meantime, I would want to be protected in the average year. Um, I know that now that for here at Stanford, I'm sure others, we've been testing our RSV, RSV influenza and paraflu panels for years. And in adults, it is equal. I mean, we have just as many RSV as flu admissions to the hospital. It crowds out our hospitals. We sometimes have to set up tents. It's been and this is before COVID. So the vaccine is going to be critical. Now, CDC made the decision to recommend with shared decision-making, which is kind of a, a bit of a difficult thing to do because it means you have to consult with your doctor. That means the doctor has to make a decision. And I think there were a lot of reasons for that. Some of it were they were worried that people might not want to get vaccinated and giving people more of an opportunity for them to make the decision. But certainly for people over 60, I would say absolutely get the vaccine because the risk is pretty high. Um, 
that that um, that an individual gets medically attended disease and potentially hospitalization. So whether or not we're going to need boosters, I, we're, I don't think we're there yet. These some of these studies will be will be helpful to look at, and it's also a testament to understanding the technology because for decades, literally decades, we were looking at the wrong version of the protein of the epitope that we were targeting. So it wasn't working. And in fact, it was probably exacerbating inflammatory responses to the vaccine. Super. Let me, uh, let me uh, now that people might be able to hear me, uh, remind people that there uh, there is an option for audience participation in this. We really uh, welcome it. Um, I'm sorry, I haven't really been watching the Q&A uh, closely enough, but uh, but I'm looking at it now and there are uh, several questions that lead us back to um, to COVID. Let me just do that uh, this quickly. First of all, uh, we haven't commented on long COVID and there's been uh, there's been developments, including trials now at, of the of the of, of the neurocognitive effects of long COVID. Uh, so I I'd welcome um, some thoughts about that and also um, kind of the long term uh, effects, possible effects of uh, vaccination uh, and what what the what options people have for uh, for um, getting compensation for vaccine related injuries. Uh, uh, anyone want to kind of tackle those things uh, pretty briefly? Well, you well, know, I'll I, start I think with, Carlos uh, is involved with recover as are we, but Carlos oh, wanted to. So I'll start. I'll start. I'll start with with long COVID. I think that you know, that finally after. Long time, you know, the recovered cohort was established by NIH as a way to do this. Recovered recently published in JAMA, I think a pretty good paper trying to define long COVID. I think one of the challenges that we have is we don't have a definition. And those of us working in HIV know that establishing a case definition at the beginning was critically important in trying to define the syndrome before we knew the cause, right? It was very important to have a case definition. Um, shortly thereafter, as you probably remember, then the case definition, there was a lot of debate among scientists about how do we modify the case definition? How about, and that's when we added tuberculosis and that's when we added cervical cancer and other diseases that we were seeing in people with HIV. So the reality is the case definition is useful and in long COVID, we, we didn't really have one. And furthermore, we still don't have a good biomarker. So there's no test that somebody can have and go to the doctor and say, you know, here you have long COVID, here's this test that shows the following. So. So it's a lot of challenge to do a trial when, when you don't even know who you're including, right? Because the inclusion criteria is not defining the population. So hopefully with the new definition, and that's why Recover took a long time because they were trying to say, who are we going to study to begin with? Now that there's a case definition, uh, you know, trials are going to be started with, with antivirals and with other medications. I think there are two... There are two prevailing theories. Is it the virus? Is this persistent viral infection? And for that reason, you know, a, a study of Paxlovid, a, a, a randomized trial with Paxlovid and long COVID is going to be conducted in which people are going to be treated for 15 days with their Paxlovid or placebo. And, and those of us that are taking Paxlovid are, are wondering, how do you make a Paxlovid placebo? Because, you know, it's pretty easy to know that you're taking Paxlovid, right? Your mouth will know it. And right. And, and I haven't kept up exactly what's going to be, be done in this trial, but at some point in time, the discussion was, oh, we'll just give people, you know, uh, you know, uh, placebo uh, uh, ritonavir. And I was like, oh, boy, I, I would have a lot of trouble enrolling somebody in a study. And when I'm going to give you a, a drug like ritonavir as, quote unquote, the placebo. But, you know, I have not looked what the trial conclusion finally was. The second theory is that this is the immune system, right, that this is immune activation that is leading to long COVID. And, and the reality is it could be either or, right? It could be both. It could be, we, we really don't know. And that's why these clinical trials are important. But also the work that is very important is the work that Steve Deeks and others are, are conducting, trying to understand the pathogenesis of the disease. Because really at the end of the day, until we understand the pathogenesis, we're not going to be able to really have a good therapeutic option. So I am excited that clinical trials are starting, but I feel a little bit like you know, I'm glad Margaret is on the call. I feel like the first study of, of uh, you know, Zydovudine, the ACT original study, that's now how we're treating HIV today. But the ACT original study was, if, you know, was the beginning of, of a long road that eventually led to highly active antiretroviral therapy. So I hope it doesn't take us that long to get to a good therapy for long COVID. But clearly, this is not, this is the beginning, it's not the end, and it's going to take a while to get there. So uh, back to RSV, there are a couple um, of questions. One is, um, 
uh, one question was, uh, did did the person hear rightly, hear correctly, uh, that uh, we're recommending RSV vaccination for adults? And I think the answer is yes, right? Um, yeah, so I saw that. And I that. do think that um, the one well, older comment- adults. The yeah. one comment there about listening to the ACIP, it can be quite convoluted, but I do think it bears help. I mean, I've summarized it very briefly. Um, there is a, a fairly complex conversation around how to recommend for people 60 and over. And again, this is an adult world. In pediatric worlds, we vaccinate everybody because even though the risk for certain diseases is not very high, you're starting off with a very young population. Um, so we tend to vaccinate across all pop, all age groups and in, in all healthy and unhealthy young children for diseases that may actually have low prevalence. So it's a little different, I think, for adult, adults. But um, uh, so I think the discussion was a lot more in depth around how to counsel. What my concern is not that everyone should get it, but that physicians may not have the discussion with their six, patients 60 and older some of most of whom, many of whom may be at risk for disease. And of course, we also don't have specific markers for who might be at highest risk. Certainly there are very high risk groups, but there are individuals who are at lower risk who may still get disease. I mean, it's a quite quite highly prevalent uh, annual pandemic. Right. So a, a couple of comments here. Uh, first of all, uh, it's been pointed out to me that uh, ISUSA has recently had the, a, a course in long covid uh, that's available online, which if you go to the uh, to the organization's website, uh, you can find a link to. And also that Bonnie is going to be leading a discussion for ISUSA uh, soon, uh, and we'll, we'll we'll notify you all of that at the end of the this course uh, on RSV. So uh, we'll have a, plenty of chances. And I, I like these comments in the Q and A um, from from uh, Amy Kressel, who says uh, that that the discussion about shared decision-making was really nuanced and important and actually gives us a, a direction to listening to that on uh, on the YouTube channel. So lots of sources of information. And if you want to hear that, uh, start go to the YouTube conversation and start at three minutes and 13 seconds and you can uh, you can hear that uh, that conversation. So uh, thanks thanks for the feedback. Um, and uh, so we've we've talked about uh, RSV a bit. We've talked about COVID and HIV. Um, Peter Chin Hong is usually our go-to person for MPOX, uh, but does anyone want to kind of hit uh, latest updates on on MPOX? Um, and I, Peter did. So, so let me give you. Let me, yep. Go let ahead. Me you, let me give you a couple of the updates. You know, we started seeing a surge in cases in some cities. We saw it in Chicago. We saw it in Boston. Uh, it burned out very quickly. It, it didn't take off like we thought it was going to. And I think in part, it's talking about there's a certain degree of immunity from, from prior infection and from people that have been vaccinated. The, the disease primarily still continues to be, you know, impacting uh, men who have sex with men. And increasingly, and in, in, in almost every cohort, about 50% of, of, of those are persons living with HIV. Uh, so the, the, the message continues to be if you're a man, have sex with men, especially if you're HIV uh, uh, co-infected, you should get vaccinated. The question is, does the vaccine offer full protection? And the answer is probably no. You don't get full protection from the vaccine. You get some protection, but you don't get full protection. If you're if you have HIV, you also need to be an antiretroviral therapy and be virally suppressed. The people that we have seen die of, of monkeypox or severely ill. Are, are persons who are not virally suppressed, who are not on antiretroviral drugs, and who have have very very uh, low uh, CD4 counts. So, so again, emphasizing the importance of 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 treating. If you have HIV but you're virally suppressed and you're you're uh, uh, you have a good CD4 count, you will your your response to monkeypox to mpox is going to be no different than if you didn't. You're going to do just fine when you're going to respond to the vaccine. We, we are seeing internationally, you know, the disease continues to spread in Latin America. They're, you know, there they haven't vaccinated and therefore there's still a fair number of patients. And now we're seeing cases in China and uh, and the outbreak of Ch in China is again, very problematic because of the lack of vaccines, because of the lack of, of a tecovirumab of treatment and because of the enormous the stigma that is associated with, with this infection. So 
you know, we're not out of monkeypox. Monkey, well, Mpox continues to be a problem. And I think what we what we need to emphasize is that a lot of these illnesses, you know, a lot of diseases are diseases of, of global significance. If there's a case of of Mpox in Chicago, people in China should worry about it. If there's a case of Mpox in 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 Brazil, people in in New York should worry about it. And, and, and you know, this this infection should should remind us that we live in this global community, and through transportation and many other ways, we're not. You know, geographic barriers really mean nothing to these viruses. So I'm on the um, ACIP Mpox working group. We are still meeting. Uh, unfortunately, we had hoped to, you know, get some more recommendations. As we're working on recommendations for the next steps for vaccination of general populations. There are some studies that are ongoing by the NIH to look at uh, vaccine effectiveness, for example, um, in, in a much more controlled setting. I think early on, um, some of the early estimates were uh, very good, but could be better because they were responding to the huge surge. I think one of the concerns about the Chicago outbreak in particular is that um, many, if not met most of the individuals who were uh, had serious infection were actually vaccinated. And so we're digging deeper into understanding uh, how many got second doses, how, how far apart from the first and second dose was the infection, all of those questions, because that's going to give us a better understanding is what's happening now in the community, especially the MSM community, is, well, I don't want to get the vaccine if it's not going to work. Um, and maybe the question is force of infection. That is, how many partners did you have? How far apart were the doses before you got infected? Maybe you didn't get your second dose, et cetera. So all of those data we're going to need to really hone out. And Fortunately, um, the government and most public health agencies at the local level are working with MSM communities in particular to get messages out for all of the summer events, the pride events and all the summer events that happen to make sure that there are vaccine clinics set up, that there's good information for communities. As Carlos said, this is a very tight network that travel can, can travel. And so you can see outbreaks, uh, uh, small uh, transmissions that occur in, in random settings as people move around. So this isn't over. We were hoping it would be done. The question is, can we fight endemicity? Can we make it a non-endemic disease? And that really depends on our ability to uh, just get that international message out because it's not just based in the U.S. Uh, let me just uh, pass on a comment that um, that Peter Chin Hung uh, gave us uh, before this uh, this uh, call today. He says that, uh, as, as Carlos had said, that there are cases, uh, uh, increasing cases of Mpox in China and East Asia. And, and he talks about stigma and says that in China, uh, Mpox is being used as a gay slur. Uh, and talks about the intersectionality with HIV. Uh, so I think you know the 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 level of politics in this and the and the concern that we have for uh, for how that affects our our patient population is is, is a real one. Uh, stay stay tuned for that. Um, let me uh, kind of at the at the risk of being political, but why not? Um, ask Bonnie. So one of the questions that we or comments that we've heard in the in the news re recently has been that kids uh are still apparently suffering lack of, you know kind of difficulty catching up educationally because of the time uh lost uh with the with the pandemic um and you know there's going to be a lot of kind of searching going back to see what would what did we do what worked what didn't work why did we do it why didn't we do it this all you know we're, we're going to be living with that for the rest of our lives um comment about schools um because you know here we have um some some great natural experience you know uh, with you know places where schools were kept open largely places where they were closed um places where public schools were closed, where private schools were kept open. Do you want to just spend a couple minutes talking about uh, what lessons we might have learned about uh, about schools and the COVID pandemic? Yeah, it's been nothing short of a tragedy to see what's happened to our children, especially the health disparities. Um, children who had no access to internet at, you know, outside of school, et cetera. I would say that we are a victim of the same fractured uh, school district uh, uh, policies as we did with the fractured healthcare systems that we have in the U.S. 
So very early on, the American Academy of Pediatrics, we worked with, I worked with the American Academy and we set up a document in June um, of 2020 um, and then uh, tried to reinforce that in 2021 to really try to make it clear that we thought children could go back to school. And we set up a very, very specific set of guidelines that we thought schools could follow to send kids back to school. And the academy, which is a non-aligned group, was accused of being political for aligning with a particular party that said schools should be open. Now, when we wrote this, we wrote it to say, yes, schools can be open, but they need to take certain uh, precautions. And then the real, the harsh and sad reality is that many of the school districts were incredibly under-resourced, whereas there were schools, and I know here in the Bay Area, we worked with some of them, schools were incredibly over-resourced. They could test every day. They could you know, isolate at home or put people in hotels. And we know that when schools were resourced well, kids did fine and they were able to keep up. But the problem was that that, that was related to your socioeconomic status. And so schools that did not have resources just chose not to go down that route. And then it really became a political issue where um, unions were afraid to go back to school for unclear reasons. And we really tried to get involved in a dispassionate way and trying to help the unions understand that they could go back to school. But by then, I think the political forces had really taken hold and that, that led to incredible delays around the country um, in different school districts applying different approaches. Now, we happen to also work with the top two school districts, not New York, but Chicago and Los Angeles and helping advise them on how to get back to school. And they really did try to build in with donor support and other supports because they were so big, testing uh, protocols to get kids and teachers back to school to feel safe. And in those situations, it sometimes worked, but it's such a heterogeneous, um, the school district's dis district um, structure is still unclear to me. It's very disorganized and I don't, I, I think they do the best they can, but there's no central way to address school district policies. And I think we should really learn from that. That certainly is how we have, we saw our health districts um, suffer as well. And there's one comment in the Q&A uh, about teachers in some areas not being considered essential workers yeah. uh, and the effects uh, the, of that on teacher morale yes. um, being being a lingering effect. So this is obviously a, a bigger topic than, than we can uh, that we can dig into. But um, but clearly, uh, the pandemic has is, is, is caused some searing effects on our society, and we'll be. We'll yeah, we're, we're, we've more. probably lost ten years of gains that we've made in the educational system. Yeah. Some of these children are. It's not just mental health. There's a lot of developmental issues, and just school school um, uh, school based um, approaches to trying to get kids caught up is just very heterogeneous. And I can tell you, even at the university level, at a university like Stanford and others, I've talked to colleagues around the country, their college students are still suffering pretty tremendous mental health distress uh, from being away from college and, and also having uh, not had the social uh, development that they've needed even th during those years. Right. So no, let me just let me, let me just add to that that, but, but quickly, that Carol, we have we have we have to get people back in person, and it is very important that we we are social animals. We need to get together, and I we're still having problems of people you know coming to work, and people don't want to go to work, people don't want to go to class, people. And the reality is, part of the the solution we have is really to to get back into into trying to be you know being in person. I think human interactions humans require human interaction. Great. Uh, again, uh, thank you uh, to the participants uh, for coming today. We had well over 300 people on on board, um, and thanks to the to the discussants. Uh, as always, a great uh, a great uh, group. Um, close with a couple of things. Uh, first of all, uh, there is the virtual course that you see uh, uh, now on your on your screen: uh, long acting drugs for the treatment and prevention uh, of HIV. Could I have the next slide if there's one? Um, yeah, here's some uncommon, uh, upcoming uh, programs uh, that we encourage you to, to look at. And I don't know if we have one uh, advertising um, uh, uh, Bonnie's uh, upcoming 
uh, RSV, but there's a lot to say and uh, we welcome uh, your participation. Again, thanks for everyone for being here today. And if you have suggestions or other, other thoughts for us, please do let us know. Uh, and thanks as always to the staff at ISUSA for getting us together. Thanks a bunch. Have a good day. Have a good day, everybody.